Hey guys, welcome to Relatable. Today I am talking to Mr. Ken Blackwell of the Family Research Council. He is also an author of several books, and this is a very encouraging conversation. You are going to leave with a love for America and a hope that things can get better, and that's just something that we really need right now. We're going to talk about racial harmony, the, the enemies to racial harmony, and just American unity uh, in general, and what we can do just as average people to make the world around us better and to make sure that we are moving in a good direction in the United States. It's a good reminder that you don't have to be an influencer to have influence by you raising your family uh, with the, the values that God has given us in his word, with the values of hard work and responsibility, uh, that we can make the world around us better. And that's all that we're called to do. We can't change the world as just one person, but we can influence uh, the spheres that God has placed us in. And so I'm very excited for you to hear his insight and to um, get encouragement and edification from him as well. So without further ado, here is Mr. Ken Blackwell. Mr. Blackwell, thank you so much for joining me. Um, I think most people listening or watching already know, but just in case, can you tell everyone who you are and what you do? (laughs) I'm Ken Blackwell. I am a fellow at the Family Research Council in Washington, D.C., and I serve on the board of several conservative, uh, constitutionally uh, centered uh, organizations. And you wrote something recently. We talk a lot on this podcast about critical race theory. Uh, You have also talked about critical race theory and how it undermines racial harmony. Can you expound on that a little more? I know for people on the left, that's a surprising statement. (laughs) Well, critical race theory, as it has been advanced, uh, sets up a hierarchy of uh, racial types. Uh, It, under the guise of attacking racism, uh, actually uh, deepens the institutional racism that that might exist in the in the world. Look, uh, those proponents of critical race theory uh, believe that uh, America was locked into a moment of history. Uh, their their motto is the 1619 motto, uh, and they believe that as a consequence of being frozen in that moment, America is irreparably. Uh, racist and must be reconstructed, torn down and fundamentally reconstructed. Well, there are those of us who understand history as a process that America was not frozen in the 1619 uh, modality. Uh, We, in fact, had a 1776 uh, birth uh, as as a nation. Uh, And while uh, there are moments in our history since 17. Uh, 76, where there have been uh, racial challenges, uh, what we have is a universally accepted principle that that, that government, uh, no form of government, is the grantor of our human rights. Our human rights are a gift of God, inherent in our human dignity, and governments can only uh, actually recognize and, and, and protect those fundamental fundamental human rights. Uh, And so critical race theory uh, basically says that there is this cabal of racial geniuses who, in fact, 
can unfreeze us from a moment that they claim that we are frozen in 1619 and do their clinical uh, manipulations uh, can change us into the perfect utopian society. Uh, and that is just pure, that is just pure nonsense. You know, since 1776, as Lincoln uh, opined, uh, we are not a perfect nation, but we are a perfectible nation. Uh, and we've seen tremendous, tremendous advancements in, in racial harmony and in the breaking down of those barriers to opportunity that have been based on race. Uh, and we have seen a, a tremendous transformation uh, in, in, in our country. Those who want to freeze us in the, in the 1619 moment of history uh, are, are, are looking at the world backwards, uh, and they have falsely claimed uh, the title of being progressive thinkers. And what do you think is behind that? Why wouldn't we want a positive view of our country as a country who is imperfect but has made amazing progress? Why would people like Ibram X. Kendi or Nicole Hannah-Jones or Robin DiAngelo want to say that we're stuck in 1619, which is a statement on its face that seems ridiculous? Well, I think, you know, these the, many of these theorists and activists uh, have uh, their their roots in uh, Marxist-Leninist worldview, uh, and and they fundamentally uh, are don't believe uh, uh, in uh, a higher power. They don't believe uh, that uh, that that paragraph, uh, the second paragraph in the Declaration of Independence, which says we hold these truths to be self-evident. And my dad, uh, who was a blue-collar worker, uh, high school graduate. He's always say to me and my brother, uh, any knucklehead should be able to get this, you know, that we're, we're endowed by our creator with <clears throat> unalienable rights and that among these are life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, and so what, what, what that paragraph really brings home is that there are all kinds of differences. Uh, we are different uh, in height and weight and income and skin color. Uh, but we all have uh, human dignity, and it is that recognition of the universality of our human dignity that gives rise to this whole uh, body of thinking and practice of protecting our, our, our human rights. And so if you, if you follow the logic of these Marxist-Leninists uh, and collectivist uh, thinkers and, and activists, uh, they see no use for God, and they see no use uh, for 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 the basic unit of the of the family, because they think uh, that government with centralized power and a bureaucratic elite uh, that they are the masters of the universe uh, and the grantors of uh, our human rights, and determining who should get what and when, uh, and on its notion. That is offensive. It seems like uh, the different kinds of Marxist ideas, which we've seen manifest themselves in different ways, not just in the West, but also in the East. One commonality between all the different manifestations, whether it's in Mao's China or in the United States, is um, is godlessness. That seems to be one of the common threads. Why do you think that is that as godlessness 
increases. The ideas of Marx and Lenin, this kind of collectivist totalitarian thinking also increases. Well, there, there, there are a couple of basic uh, tenets of Marxist-Leninist practice and thought. One, they have no use for God. And so they will try to chase God and faith out of the public square. And they will tell you that religion can be practiced, if it's practiced at all, within the four uh, walls of the of the church, but it has no uh, place in the in the public square, and they do everything they can do to uh, run God and faith out of the public square. The other thing is what I mentioned before: they see uh, the family as a useless construct because they see the power of being in in the state or the centralized bureaucracy. Uh, that go- that governs and controls uh, every aspect of our of our of our lives, uh, and so consistent uh, with their concentration of power in the hands of a few within a centralized government is this notion that the family is useless and God and faith must be you know exercised out of uh, out of the public. Uh, out of the public square. Look, my well, I, I grew up in, in a blue collar family uh, of, of lower income, uh, but uh, uh, my dad was a World War II veteran, uh, and he he believed in the 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 the, the promise and and infinite possibilities of of, of this of this country. Uh, but he and my mom and my grandparents uh, they raised us. Uh, and I, I on 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 three books, you know. Uh, and my grandmother, when she talked to me as I was going off to college, she said, "Remember the books that your family has taught you to embrace as you go to embrace the library of thousands of books." She said those books, and she reemphasized, "I already knew what they were: were my date book, my checkbook, and the good book." And she said, "You know." And, and I was raised on this notion that my date book or my calendar. It reflected how I spent my time and with whom I spent it. Mm. Uh, my checkbook uh, actually saw how I exercised my stewardship, no matter how meager our, our income or how abundant, you know, how we managed that, those resources was important. But, you know, it was the good book. It was the Bible. It was the, 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 the book that we were raised on uh, that would help us pick the path of 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 conviction over the path of convenience. Uh, and so I, as I've gone through uh, some of the best uh, academic institutions uh, as a student, as, uh, as a lecturer, uh, <clears throat> uh, as a member of boards of trustees, one of the things I've always remembered was that the family, uh, is the incubator of liberty. And in my family, you know, those three books uh, led by uh, the Bible was, was so important. Uh, and it is that worldview that is in direct uh, conflict uh, and daily challenges uh, the, the worldview of collectivists or stated mm-hmm. or Martin and Leninists. Right. Which is exactly why I would say a group like Black Lives Matter has said explicitly that, you know, a village cares for a child, a community cares for a child, and they don't list fathers on their websites at 
all. They just say parents and mothers. I would say that that's intentional. That is from that Marxist godless world, godless worldview, because like you said, not only is the family the incubator of liberty, which liberty and Marxism are obviously opposed, but it's also the establishment of a child's values and uh, dependence as well that is in direct conflict uh, with getting your values and depending on the state. Um, so we obviously, we know that faith is important in combating this craziness of godless critical race theory and Marxism. But as you say, the family is as well. Can you talk about some of the repercussions that we've seen in the disintegration of the family in all kinds of communities in the United States, but as you have talked about before, in particular, the black community in the United States? Well, it's been very, very fascinating. And I think uh, embracing uh, a, a real examination of, of the history of, of, of Blacks in America uh, is, is so important because we, we passed through uh, the time where the institution of slavery was deeply rooted in, in, in America and had all kinds of negative consequences. But the family unit uh, the love, and you, and you just mentioned it. Uh, you know, we are born into the world very dependent, very vulnerable uh, to forces that are bigger than us. Uh, and so we're very much dependent on uh, uh, the, the smallest unit of community, and in our case, it's the family, uh, to, to, pr- to, protect the, to protect the young, uh, to, to, to teach the young. Uh, to be independent and self re- self reliant. Now, if you you go back and you take a look at, you know, again, collectivists and status and socialists, you know, you you put the label on them. They they have something in common, uh, and that is that they they see human beings not as independent uh, individuals with human conscience. Uh, they see them almost as humanoids that are manipulable. Mm-hmm. Uh, that they must, in fact, give give daily ins- instruction to, uh, and they build dependence. And so, if you go back and you and you look at the fifties and the sixties, and I it, there there were the intact black family was almost it was in, uh, on, on par with the intact white family in mm-hmm. America. It was only after the Great Society program in um, in the mid '60s, that that we we moved to this to the the development of the welfare state, uh, and rules and regulations were established uh, that actually uh, incentivized the breakdown of of the family. And so, when you had the breakdown of the family, uh, and you rewarded you, you rewarded families that were followed fatherless. Uh, you, in fact, uh, institutionalize uh, the separation of fathers from the lives of their of their of their young. Uh, and so, uh, as we said uh, a few minutes ago, one of the responsibilities and functions of the family is behavioral modeling uh, and 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 education. Uh, and if you destroy that the the clarity of that modeling of that relationship, you begin to see the breakdown of the family. So much so now that about 70% of the, 
of the children born in, in to, to to black mothers are born out of wedlock uh, and right. into yeah. into broken families, and that has all kinds of negative uh, connotations. Okay, so you have your kids at home for the summer and you want to make sure that they stay engaged, that they're not just sitting in front of the TV, allowing their minds to become mush. And so you need a way to do that. Maybe you're um, you're out of activities at the end of the day and you want to make sure that they are still doing something that is engaging their mind and maybe it's important to you to have them work with their hands as well. Annie's Kit Clubs allows your kids to do that in a really fun way. So they've got two different kinds of craft kits to send your kids every month, both for your boys and your girls. They've got a young woodworkers kit, which is a monthly subscription that sends kids real hammer and nails construction kits. They even include real tools, starting with this little kid-sized hammer. Your kids can build complete kits with minimal supervision. All the instructions, all the tools that they need comes inside this kit. They also have Annie's Creative Girls Club, which introduces your daughter to new crafts with every shipment. Each month, she'll receive two fun kits complete with easy-to-follow instructions so you can kickstart her creativity through painting, beading, and more. So your kids can master new hands-on skills while expressing their creativity, which of course is so important. Go to annieskitclubs.com slash Allie and you save 75% off your purchase when you do, which is an amazing deal. That's annieskitclubs.com slash Allie for 75% off. And, you know, what she'll hear if you bring up the consequences of fatherlessness, rather than dealing with that, she'll get, you know, left-wing activists say, well, fatherlessness is actually a result of systemic racism through mass incarceration. But if you look at the data that corresponds with what you're saying, um, actually, fatherlessness increased for both white and black families starting in the 1960s. Now, people talk about mass incarceration starting with the, you know, so-called drug wars of the 1980s and even the 1990s. And so fatherlessness started to spike in the 60s and 70s among both white and black families, which corresponds much more closely with what you said, the start of the welfare state in the 1960s. And now the fatherlessness rate for all kinds of ethnic backgrounds in the United States is much higher than it was uh, in in the 1960s. So if it was truly just systemic racism against black people that caused fatherlessness, while the white fatherlessness rate wouldn't have, you know, increased as much as it has too. And I also think it's just a way to avoid talking about this problem. Why do you think it is that so many activist groups that say Black Lives Matter won't talk about the problem of fatherlessness, not just among those communities, but among all communities in the United States? Well, because most of them are beneficiaries of uh, maintaining of individuals that are wards of, of, of the state. Uh, they aspire, you know, to be part of the bureaucratic elite, uh, those, those, those folks that are more concerned in breeding uh, dependency than they are in uh, cherishing and developing uh, uh, individuals and families that, that, further, that further liberty. Uh, one, of the, one of the main uh, destructive elements of the welfare state is that it destroys the dignity of work. 
Uh, and again, as I indicated, we're, we're all uh, sort of uh, educated by, by as, as young folks, uh, by the folks who were our immediate, our immediate family and, and, and community. And again, uh, the dignity of, of, of work, it was so, so important. And so, um, my, my dad, as he, as he, as he looked for work, uh, what he understood was that there was a correlation between his ability to work, his ability to give and provide for his family. Uh, and two things happened. It bred independence. When he came back from World War II, he came back to Cincinnati, and there were still vestiges of segregation. There was a housing shortage, and we lived in a public housing community. But we saw that as a, a, a temporary, and he saw it, and my mom saw it as a temporary uh, station. They didn't see our ourselves as being, our family as being locked into a public housing community. He, in fact, wanted to, to work, which he did. He worked two jobs and at times three jobs to make sure that there was an income coming into the family. He and my mom made a decision uh, that he would work those two and three jobs so that she could, in fact, stay home and provide us uh, with parental supervision. Uh, but, you know, she she who uh, was a high school dropout but went back and got her GED uh, she was always prepared to, to to go to work if, in fact, there was an income shortage, particularly as we got older. But what I learned from both of them, going back to our three books, was that we prayed all the time, but there was a dignity in work, and there was a, a, a self-reliance uh, that, that came from that. And, and, and something that was very much taught to us, uh, and that was that we have an individual conscience. Uh, and, and so uh, there, there is accountability for our, our, our behavior, that our conditions might not always be perfect, uh, but the actions that we take, uh, the behaviors that we assume, uh, we are responsible for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you, when you have this notion that there, we are individuals of individual conscience, that we in fact know right from wrong, uh, and that there is an expectation that we will be accountable, you get a whole different set of behaviors from folks raised in that sort of environment than folks from broken families where there is that lack of supervision and all too often the streets or the television became the babysitters mm -hmm. uh, and the cultivators. Of a, of a worldview and, and a set of expe expectations. That has devastating effects, not only on the family, uh, but on communities. Yes, and as you're talking, I'm thinking about, you know, my own parents' story, which actually sounds similar to your parents' story. They didn't come from very much or even the most stable families in the world, but they made a few good decisions when they were young. One, that they were both going to graduate from high school and that they were going to wait to have kids until after they got married. They got married very young. They got married at 19 and 20. My dad also had to work very hard. My mom was a student teacher when she was pregnant with my oldest brother. And so I think they would say those early days of 
living in a trailer were very, very difficult. And it was hard to provide, you know, for their family. But they continued to make what seemed probably at the time like small decisions that differed even slightly from their parents and even the decisions that some of their siblings made. Um, But that really did make all the difference. They were determined to make those small choices in the hopes that they would be able to create a life that was better for my brothers and me than the one that they had. And it seems like that kind of story, which I think is very typical for so many American families, it's pushed to the side in exchange for this narrative of, well, actually, you can't get ahead if you're born into this system. This is, uh, you know, some kind of caste system in the United States. And it's very it's very foreign to me and it's very difficult for me to have a conversation with someone who believes that and who thinks any story that I tell or any experience that I have is just, you know, indicative of my white supremacy or privilege. It seems like, like you said, that's going to continue to really hold people back, especially children, if that's their mentality. Well, you know, Ali, it's, 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 it's so important that we understand uh, that the human condition, and this, this came out of my, my family's experience, uh, the human condition is not a spectator sport. Uh, you, you, you can influence the course of history and change human conditions, or you can be a spectator and you can be made by and, and shaped and run over uh, by, the, by the streams of history uh, in, in your space and, and in, your, in your time. You know, um, <clears throat> I had a great uncle. Um, you, you probably have never heard of him. His name was D. Hart Hubbard. Uh, my uncle D. Hart was the first Black American to win an Olympic gold medal in a track and field uh, individual event. He did it in 1924 uh, in the Olympic Games in, in Paris. And Uncle D. Hart had a transatlantic debate uh, with the great Eric Little as to which one of them was the fastest human being on the face of the earth. My Uncle D. Hart had qualified for the 100-yard dash, the high hurdles, and the long jump. Uh, and they were going to resolve that once they got to, to, to Paris. And folks know of Eric Little from the, the film The Chariots of Fire. So when, when, when he... When my uncle got to to uh, Paris, he was told by the International Olympic Committee uh, that the 100-yard dash and the high hurdles were white-only events, and so he couldn't he couldn't compete. Uh, but he won the gold medal in in the long jump. But he came back and he told my mom's generation uh, that God had blessed him uh, with his interaction with Eric Little, uh, because as you know, Eric Little. Uh, didn't run in the finals for the 100-yard dash because it fell on the Sabbath. Uh, and so uh, because he was a devout Christian, he did not compete. He, he, he passed up the, the, the sprint for worldly glory uh, because of his, his, his devotion to his, to his faith. And when my uncle came back, he told my mother's generation, he said, you know, uh, what I got exposed to was a fidelity to faith. That was that was so powerful uh, that uh, he he my uncle wanted to make sure that my mom's generation understood the power of of faith and devotion uh, and so it goes back to that one of those three books you, we were we were raised on the on biblical teachings 
to to and the story of Uncle D. Hart and Eric Little to underscore the importance uh, that uh, one uh, we 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 can change our our, our conditions. Uh, we must uh, be uh, consistent with God's divine uh, design for our lives. Uh, and, and we must understand that there's not a government on the face of the earth that can give you your human dignity. It's been invested in you by a higher power already. And so we engage in every aspect of my life, whether my father was going to World War II or whether the, we worked in the civil rights movement to make sure that there, there was a, a, a matching of America's promise with America's practice. And that's, that's so important. The human condition is not a spectator sport. We can make things better. And that's what Lincoln's meant when he yeah. said we are a perfectible. We're not perfect, but we are a perfectible nation. Okay, I am here to tell you again about Good Ranchers. You guys probably remember me talking to you about this before. I really am so excited about this company. I love what they do. They send quality American beef and better than organic chicken to your front door. You might have heard of, you know, the other companies that do the same thing, but Good Ranchers really does stand apart. They're different than their competitors because they make sure that 100% of the meat that they send you is not only quality, but is also from American farmers. Now more than ever, it's really important that we support our farmers. And this is a way to do that. And Good Ranchers makes it really easy. They send all the meat that you order online. You get to go online, goodranchers.com. You pick the meat that you want. They send it to your front door. It's individually wrapped. That eliminates waste. It's ready to grill as soon as you get it. You can even order pre-marinated chicken. We really like doing that. It just makes it so easy. And you can either get, you know, just a one-time order, see if you like it, or you can go ahead and subscribe. And when you do subscribe and you get your regular box of meat, you actually save 20% on each purchase by doing that. And that brings the cost per meal down to $2.38, which is a really good deal. So it makes your life easier. You're supporting American farmers. It's really affordable. There's really no reason not to do this. Plus, if you use my link, if you go to goodranchers.com slash Allie, you get an extra $20 off your purchase. And plus you get free express shipping. It already ships really quickly within like five to seven business days. But this free express shipping that you get with my link, um, make sure that you get your meat even more quickly. So go to goodranchers.com slash Allie. You'll get $20 off your purchase plus that free express shipping. That's goodranchers.com slash Allie. Do you think that that's still the case? And this is what I, I want to end on. There's a lot of people who feel like, you know, we're past the point of no return with these culture wars, with people who are just so willing to forego their freedom, churches, even de-emphasizing the importance of biblical justice and the biblical definitions of marriage, sexuality, family, all of that. Um, some people feel that America is too far gone and there's no going back. Do you still think that we are a perfectible, betterable nation? And if so, what do we do? <laughs> we stay engaged. And the answer to your question is yes. Uh, but again, we can't be sideline sitters. Each one of us has to be willing to go on the front lines 
of of the of this battle, you know. And as as my 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 grandfather used to say, "Do what you can with what you have, where you are." Mm-hmm. And and that is so important that, that we engage, uh, that we in fact become a force for bettering our our society. Uh, there are big moments throughout our 200 and now almost 45 years of existence, uh, and we've become a better nation when, in fact, we've had folks who have been willing to fight for the promise of America. Yes, and amen. I agree with that, and I hope people are encouraged by that as well. Uh, Can you tell people where they can follow you? I know that you're an author as well. Where can they buy your books and all that good stuff? Well, I have three books uh, that you can purchase through Amazon. Uh, but, you know, if you want to follow my uh, my writings, I, uh, I'm, a, like I said, a senior fellow at FEM Research Council. So you can go to uh, frc.org, uh, uh, punch on my the link to my uh, bio and my articles uh, and, and follow me that way. And, uh, you know, I, I just... I, I, I am so thankful uh, because I understand uh, the power of this sort of dialogue that we're having now. Uh, we, the human spirit is irrepressible. Uh, we will conquer uh, any oppressive status force uh, because we, in fact, are pursuing a path that is not the architecture of Marxist a Marx or Lenin or Mao, but of a much higher power. And that is one that recognizes that a divine power, God, is the architect of our human liberty uh, and that the United States of America, as we've known it from 200 and now 45 years, is not perfect, but it's perfectible when we are engaged. So thank you for being engaged. Thank you for uh, illuminating, not for lighting candles, not spending all your time cursing the darkness. Uh, and that is why we will win. We are not sideline centers who curse the darkness. We, in fact, light candles and we punch holes in the darkness of our time. Amen. Well, that is a beautiful place to end on. Thank you so much for ending with that light and with that encouragement. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Ali. All right, guys, I really hope that you enjoyed that conversation. So just to reemphasize what I said at the beginning and what was emphasized throughout this conversation is that you don't have to be an influencer to have influence. That means you don't have to have thousands of followers. You don't have to have a podcast. You don't necessarily have to run for office. You don't have to start an organization or be an activist. You can do those things. Maybe God is calling you to do those things, Uh, but maybe he's not. Maybe he is asking you to make a difference in your family by obeying him in motherhood by joyfully changing diapers and joyfully washing the dishes and joyfully doing the work that you do as a stay-at-home wife and mom. Don't let anyone tell you that obeying Christ in the so-called small areas of your life is not enough because that is what God calls us to. God calls us to occupy the spheres in which he has placed us um, with joy and with love and with service and with truth. So, 
It means uh, filling positively and in a godly way the spaces that you are in, the spheres of influence that you already have, whether it's 10 people or whether it's 10 million people. It doesn't matter. What we are called to is obedience. And part of that is making sure that we are living in truth, that we are not redefining what we think about justice or the definition of love or the definition of sexuality or marriage or gender or right or wrong or good or bad or the role of the government versus the role of the family based on what society tells us these things are. But we continue to look to God and we continue to look at his word. And that doesn't mean it's going to be easy. You're going to be called a bigot. You're going to be said, it's going to be said that you're on the wrong side of history. If you don't agree with the whole social justice anti-racist movement, which is pushed by critical race theory, you are going to be told that you are wrong, that you're a racist, that you're a white supremacist. But you, you look to Matthew 10, that says, look, you are to fear God rather than man, because uh, what God can do is eternal. What man can do is temporal. You look to Romans 8 and says, it is God who justifies who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who right now is seated at the right hand of God interceding for us. If our God is for us, who can be uh, against us? That is the strength. That is the resolve that you have. And to be alone on God's side, to be alone on the side of truth is to be, is better than uh, being on the wrong side with millions of people who are telling you that you are right. So keep that perspective and keep the faith and ask for God to give us strength and to give us resolve and to uh, be with us as we move forward in love and in truth. All right. That's all I've got for us today. I will be back here soon. 